Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, January 24th, 2014. Taking a look at my notes here. Another one of those days where I'm going on the air going, am I ready for today? (laughs) We've got battle plans? We do? Really? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down and stop and open up our Bibles. And the, the, think of it this way, is, is that discernment is one of those things where the degree of difficulty can be, well, super easy or really, really difficult. It's, you know, you can be off by just a, a, an emphasis or a focus or a degree. And by doing so, you end up missing the point. And yeah, so you, when you're flexing your discernment skills, what this requires you to do is to, well, actually have a good working knowledge of Scripture yourself. Now, one of the things I've noticed about the seeker-driven movement, and I've com- you know, complained about this and, and uh, talked about it in depth in this way, is that it, it, you, know, you show up at a seeker-driven megachurch, and what you're really going to get over the course of a year, year and a half, maybe two years max, is the same verses ripped out of context, just with new sparkle and glitz put the, put on them? And you know, there's a, there's a rhythm to the way they do things. Yeah, you know, I talked about the uh, the seeker driven lectionary, which you know you, you got to cast vision or have people make commitments to improve themselves in the beginning of the year. Then you get into February, which is where Valentine's Day falls, so you have to talk about love and romance and things like that. And of course, once you you know do the love and romance thing, well, that leads to kids and when you have kids well then you don't have a lot of money and so you have to you know talk about how to balance your checkbook you know tithe in order to get from god yeah that's that's um, a false doctrine by the way um and um and so you you know that's the whole point of tithing but then you know now that you are beginning to be able to afford these kids that you had after you you know had all this great romance uh, then you have bad badly behaved kids and so you have to figure out how to make your family function you know right and so and you get what i'm saying so you go you go through the series of things. But once you've been around the track once, 
what you're going to find is is that they basically take the same out of context verses and then plug them into a whole new glitzy sermon series, brand new name, new theme, new backdrop on the stage. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same verses just with a new paint job. And you don't really, it over any course of time in a seeker-driven church, actually get any in-depth preaching and teaching in God's Word that will help you understand what is going on there. And so as a result of it, you know, you stay along the surface, and that's kind of putting it um, politely. Um, oftentimes you're led astray by these out-of-context verses and taught falsely regarding what God's will is for people's lives and what the solution to their problems is. But you stay along the surface kind of like a skipping stone. You know, you just skip, 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 skip. And then, you know, you grab another stone and you skip, 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 skip in the same spots. And you don't really, at the end of it, have any clue what God's Word really actually says. And so you do that a few times, and you're thinking, well, this is all that Christianity has to offer. I mean, God gave me a brain, and uh, this is making my brain feel like it's you know being starved to death, and so I'm out of here. <laughs> and that's what happens. Um, what the seeker-driven guys don't tell you is that their back door is is quite active, not nearly as active as the front door. And that's kind of the idea is that they have to continue to keep attracting people in the front door because there's so much, so many people leaving out the back door because, you know, it, uh, the appeal of a seeker-driven celebrity pastor is about as long as the appeal of a celebrity, uh, uh, you know, himself or herself. I mean, you know, after a while, you know, that celebrity's celebrity kind of wears off and you're tired of that celebrity and you, you, you want something new, you need something different. And uh, so you change channels, you pick up a new sitcom or you pick up a new drama series on television and, and you, you, you ride that thing out for a few years and you start to get bored with it and you got to find the next thing, right? You know, that's how it goes. Well, this is what's happening in the megachurches. But the point of the matter is this, is that you don't ever know what God's word says at the end of this because you've been caught up in a celebrity type of thing, uh, a cult of personality, and uh, that cult of personality revolves around just basically rehashing the same out-of-context verses to supposedly inspire you to apply them to your life so that you can have life transformation or life change. This is the big deal. But, um, but here's the thing is that if you were attending a church that actually the pastor was doing his job, and that is teaching the full counsel of the Word of God with regularity, okay? Um, which, you know, now, you know, one of the things, you know, I'll toot the horn here for liturgical churches that follow a lectionary. You're thinking, liturgical churches that follow a lectionary? Yeah, there, there's, a good, there's a good thing there for you. And that's this, is that if you have a pastor who's following a lectionary, you don't have to deal with the tyranny of the creative or the uh, tyranny of the innovative because the job of the pastor, and this, the congregation will hold him to it, is that you know, he's assigned the texts that he's supposed to preach from. He's, you know, and, um, and some lectionaries are one year long. Some lectionaries are three years long. Uh, and the idea is, is that you know, with, you know, with any given Sunday coming up, you you know the texts you know that he has the options to preach on an old testament lesson an epistle text as well as a gospel text and so the idea is is that you stick you stay in that church for with any degree of length 
and your depth of understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, what the doctrines and dogma of Scripture are, continues to improve. And you're thinking, yeah, but every three years we go around the track again. Yeah, but you're going around the track again, not with out-of-context verses, but with full passages of scripture. You know, so think of it this way. Have have any of you ever had the wonderful experience of having a story that you really you know of reading a book or a story that you just really love and finding yourself rereading it? Uh-huh. And you think, "Oh, that was a great story. I got to reread that thing." So you you, you read it again. And you think, oh, yeah, that was really good. And so I'm going I'm to read it again. And you read it again. And what you find is, is that when you're dealing with something substantive, that each and every time that you read it, the, the, the next time you go around the track, it's not like you're spinning your wheels in a loop, but it's more like ascending a spiral staircase. So that each time you go around, you're actually ascending. You're going somewhere and your depth and understanding continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's like, it's like planting a tree, if you would. You know? yeah, yeah, I, one time my wife and I, we had the uh, opportunity to actually purchase a brand new home in uh, out in the the uh, 909 area code in uh, in southern california which by the way is one of the lower rent districts but uh, the the point is cuz that's what we could afford and so uh, we we purchased a brand new home and the thing i did not like about the brand new home is that it was in a brand new neighborhood and brand new neighborhoods and brand new homes have something very important missing from them and that's mature trees. And so, you know, when I would drive home, I, you know, I used to commute into Orange County from the 909 on the Ortega Highway, of course, which, uh, oh man, that is a harrowing uh, journey. At least it was back in the day when I had to do uh, do it. And I don't recommend that for anybody. But um, so, you know, I would, you know, I would drive from uh, the, uh, the bottom part of Corona, California into San Juan Capistrano every day on the Ortega Highway. But that's a whole other story. But when I would come home from work, you know, I'd drive into the neighborhood and, you know, get onto my street and you you look down the lane and you'd see houses with sticks sticking out of their lawns, you know, because everybody was planting trees, but all of the trees were basically really, really young. I mean, you know, and nobody could afford like really, you know, the, the older trees you could get, you could purchase older trees, but they're expensive, you know, you, but you, you know, you go down to, you know, your local, uh, you know, greenhouse or whatever, and, you know, you buy yourself some trees. They're not that expensive when they're young, but here's the problem is that, you know, you got to put a lot of water and a lot of time into them. And it takes a few years for them to get to the point where they are mature enough where they're casting some shade and, you know, and being useful in the yard and stuff like that rather than looking like sticks. And and so th- think of it this way is, is that your journey in Christianity should be, should be like a tree that's been planted. If you're new in the Christian faith and uh, and you're being taught properly, you're like a sapling. You've been you've been planted, and the job of the pastor, um, although you know I'm mixing metaphors here, even though he's a shepherd, the job of the pastor is to make sure that you're being cared for, watered, tended, and things like that. You know, if a wind comes along and knocks off a branch, we got to you know put that back up and you know take care of you. And so for a few years, you're actually going to be you know a pretty thin tree. 
But with more watering and care, you, you know, the roots go deeper and then the, and the top of the tree goes up and the branches start spreading out. And that's the idea. But see, this is, an, this is impossible to have happen in a, in a seeker-driven church with the type of preaching that you get. You know, literally, um, you know, you're not being watered. You're not being cared for. There's no way for the roots to go deep. You know, everything is always focused on this life and, and it's purposely kept. Uh, at such a shallow level that there's no depth that's possible to be had. And so as a result of it, you don't really grow. Your your growth is stunted. So it would be like, you know, planting a tree in a brand new neighborhood. And, uh, and you know, six, seven, eight years later, the tree is still, you know, only, you know, about an inch around in diameter. And, and its leaves are sickly and gross and stuff like that. It's just, you know, that's that's a tree that's not worth much, you know, you know. You know, you can't expect a tree like that to actually mature and be able to reproduce. And that's the idea, is that um, you want to be able, as Christians, as we mature and grow in our understanding of the gospel, grow in our understanding of sound doctrine, um, you know, you know we're, we become less susceptible to the, the schemes of the devil, less focused on, on the temporal and more focused on the eternal, and more mature and able to communicate the truths of Christianity in a way that um, that shows that we understand what the true message is, and, and mature Christians then are able to call uh, unbelievers to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the idea, but uh, you can't get that in a church that purposely avoids feeding Christians with any depth of you know with any depth when it comes to Scripture. It just it's, it becomes you know absolutely an impossibility for any Christian who really wants to be mature to stay in a church like that. But unfortunately, um, rather than finding a, a church where they're going to be fed, where they're going to grow, where they're going to be stretched, where they're going to be challenged and even pruned, um, instead, uh, you know, people say, you yeah, know, well, this is what Christianity has to offer. I mean, it's just so shallow and vapid and me-centered and, uh, you know, I haven't really, I mean, this, this is all that Christianity has to offer. I mean, who wants this? And they leave, and they've been perfectly inoculated against Christianity, having never actually been taught it. You, you see what I'm saying? This this is bad. This is mucho bad. So, the, the, you know, the, so here's my encouragement to you. If you're not attending a church where you're being fed and taught God's word, where you're not being taught the full counsel of the word of God with regularity, where your pastor is basically guilty of taking the same you know, same set of out-of-context verses that are supposed to be things that you can apply to your lives in order to experience life transformation, and he's just repeating those same out-of-context verses year after year or every year and a half or every two years, just putting a new paint job on it. Yeah, you're probably not growing and maturing in 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 your understanding of the historic Christian faith and what the Bible teaches. And uh, rather than leave Christianity, leave that church and find a good church. Find a church where Christ is going to be proclaimed and preached and the gospel preached to you and where you're going to hear and you know grow in your depth of understanding of God's word so that each time you go around the lectionary track, if you would, your roots grow deeper and your understanding grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And you'll, you'll find that when you approach Christianity in this way, you're never really going to exhaust uh, you know, what scripture says. I think a lot of people get bored because they think, oh, I've heard that, I've done that. You know, I, I know what that passage says. Yeah, that, 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 you know, I don't even know if that applies to me. But sound biblical doctrine, exegetical preaching, you know, in context, preaching through the full counsel of the Word of God, you, you don't find yourself doing that. You find yourself going, wow, okay, I knew this story, but I, 
had never even realized that part of it. And whoa, that's amazing. And yeah, you get what I'm saying. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're, you know, we got a few things that I would like to do to end up the week here. Uh, the first one is we're going to um, listen to a short video from Brian Houston. Um, yeah, of uh, Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia. And this kind of falls under the category of what does this sentence mean? Or what do these sentences mean? What do these words mean? Uh, yeah, Brian Houston is one of these guys who um, is capable of um, fast talking, if you would, you know, almost double speak. And, uh, and this is just a prime example. This is a short little uh, promo video for Hillsong in uh, Sydney, Australia. And after hearing, he- hearing it, I just went, what did I just hear? I mean, it, it didn't make any sense at all. So, uh, you know, by the time we finish that, um, it'll probably be about time for us to uh, take a break. But when we come back from the break, we've got a Cindy Jacobs update where she's talking, uh, her and her husband are uh, interviewing James Gall, talking about the lifestyle of a prophet, the lifestyle of a prophet, and talking about missing the point. And then what we'll do to end off hour number one, we have a Joyce Meyer update where she's going to be talking about the power of our words. And I think it's important that you uh, hear what she has got to say there because, um, you know, Joyce Meyer is a full-blown advocate and believer in what's called the word of faith heresy. It's not It's not just a false doctrine. It's a heresy. So, uh, And then in hour number two, we'll end off the uh, week with a, a good sermon or two. And uh, so that's how we're going to finish up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got not that much ground to cover, but uh, enough that uh, should keep you um, keep your attention for a little bit of time. And since we're doing a Brian Houston update, I'm going to go ahead and play our Los Lobos update music. Here we go. That's right. Hungry like the wolf. Now, you'll notice I never sing along to Duran Duran and Simon Le Bon because I can't get it up into that register. My voice, it doesn't get there. So I, I would end up screeching and y'all ears would be bleeding. It w- wouldn't be good. But all right. So the name of this video from a Hill Song out there in uh, Sydney, Australia, is where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, listen, listen intently. You know, pay close attention to what he's saying and see if it actually makes any coherent sense to you, because I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And I have listened to this probably about five times now, thinking, "Am I? Was it was it really that incoherent? It can't really be that incoherent." Let me listen again. Yeah, it was that incoherent. Here's Brian Houston and his incoherent one-minute blurb on where the spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. Here we go. Well, I love the idea of the Holy Spirit being God-breathed as the breath of God or as the wind of the Holy Spirit. And when... <laughs> okay. See, already we're off to a bad start. And, you know, it, it, it's it's funny because his voice reminds me of like a, you know, a Pixar character from one of those under, like from like Finding Nemo. It's like I'm looking, you know, I, I feel like I'm listening to a great white shark from Finding Nemo. But, all right, so... He says, I like the idea that the Holy Spirit is God-breathed. 
<laughs> no, the Holy Spirit is not God-breathed. The scriptures are God-breathed. It's like, this is why you don't ad-lib theology. You, you don't do that. God decides to blow with his beautiful, beautiful, free power into any part of our world. It brings a revolution. And I know it's easy to live our life with areas of our life restricted by bondage or even still trying to... <laughs> it's hard when we're living areas of our lives that are restricted by bondage. <laughs> What kind of sentence is that? I hold on to old ways or old sin and different things and just to invite the Holy Spirit in, recognizing that freedom is not just something that God does through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is freedom. And <laughs> So freedom is not just something that God does. Is freedom something you do? <laughs> oh, man, this is terrible. <laughs> It's see the thing is is that you're listening to this and it sounds like he's making sense, but if you actually stop and try to push just a little bit and go, okay, what did that mean exactly? So freedom is not just something that God does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have when was the last time any of you all have done some freedom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me back this up a little bit because again, this is just kind of a litany of of nonsensical statements all so pious because there's and the, because you know Brian Houston of course everybody knows he's a secret driven mega church pastor of the charismatic stripe and so you know hey you know he's got to be saying something that's really important regarding god he and he loves the idea that god the holy spirit is god breathed <laughs> Yeah. Be part of our world, it brings a revolution. And I know it's easy to live our life with areas of our life restricted by bondage or even still trying to hold on to old ways or old sin and different things and just to invite the Holy Spirit in, yeah. recognizing that freedom is not just something that God does through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is freedom. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom. So my prayer for you today is where there's restriction, where sometimes it just doesn't seem to be a way forward. Invite the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your guide. The Holy Spirit, he's your friend, your comforter. Invite him right into the center of your life and watch how he can bring freedom into the most impossible type situations. I love God, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that, that's great. I love God, the Holy Spirit, too. And as a Christian, I'm indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. But that, you see, the thing is, is that what was wrong here is that um, the beginning portion of this nonsensical uh, video actually was nonsense. And so the solution to nonsense was you need to ask the Holy Spirit to just welcome him to come on in right into the center of your life. And, and he'll just, you know, patch everything right up so that you can do freedom. Um <laughs> Yeah, um, okay, it doesn't really work that way, and see, the thing is, is if this is really God, you know, he, he, I'm glad he likes the idea that God, the Holy Spirit, is God-breathed, but um, this this video wasn't God-breathed, it was actual nonsense, and it actually, it, when you boil, really boil it all down, has a pretty bad uh, theology, a, a pneumatology uh, regarding God, the Holy Spirit. We as Christians already have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And so uh, the idea here, what he was saying, it doesn't make any sense at all. Of course, none of what he said is actually found in Scripture, at least the way he said it. You get what I'm saying there? <sighs> maybe I'm not making sense. See, the, maybe it's rubbing off. Oh, no, man. that's That'd be terrible. I mean, 
too much exposure to all these nonsensical statements by uh, bad false teachers and heretics has somehow made it impossible for me to actually think and communicate lucid thoughts. Ooh, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Cindy Jacobs update as well as a Joyce Meyer update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite uh, television, radio, preacher, teacher, pastrix person, especially if they don't make any sense. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and it is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we've got a um, an update with Cindy Jacobs, so we've got to do this. Jude, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Ah! 
right. Yeah, it's our uh, update music for when we play somebody from the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, the NAR, um, for those of you who like government talk. But uh, the NAR, Cindy Jacobs has, uh, well, how do I put this? Uh, She is known for some pretty bizarre teaching. That's just about the kindest way that I can put it. But I'm playing this particular segment from their God Knows television program because I think that's appropriately named, because God knows um, what they're talking about. But uh, they're going to be interviewing James Gall. And you got to pay close attention to the semantics in this particular video, because the semantics get, well, rather slippery, rather mm, loose. Uh, It's not like the gears are actually connecting right. You know, things are spinning that shouldn't be spinning. And and if you're not familiar with this particular technique of Bible twisting, which has to do with not paying close attention to the definitions of words and how, what they mean in context, well, it's easy for you to get schnickered and bamboozled. You know what I'm saying? So here's uh, Cindy and Mike Jacobs to introduce James Gall as they talk about the lifestyle of a prophet. Here we go. Hi, welcome to God Knows. We are delighted to have one of our really good friends on the set today, James Gall. Tell them a little about James. They may yeah, not know that much. And you're wearing green, and I'm wearing green, and we didn't even plan it. We're so in sync. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> James Gall is the president. Yeah, that, that, that maniacal laugh was <clears throat> James Gall. <laughs> Honors Network, director of Prayer Storm, and he does all kinds of things. He's a member of the Harvest International Ministries Apostolic Team and Wagner Institute. And he has preached in more than 50 nations, teaching and imparting the power of intercession, prophetic, and life of the Spirit. He's a prolific writer. He puts me in the dust. I have to say that. He's produced study guides. We're going to be talking about, uh, in, in the series we're going to be doing with him, some of his books. He's written a new one, The Lifestyle of a Prophet. This guy is an accurate prophet. I had been with <laughs> Okay. Um, here's the thing is that, um, if you are truly somebody who is a real prophet, okay, then you don't have to have the modifier in front of your title as accurate. Okay. Because if you're not accurate, you are not a prophet. God's word makes this very clear that if a prophet arises and tells you something that's going to happen and it doesn't happen, you're not to fear them. They're a false prophet. In fact, back in the day in the uh, in the theocracy of ancient Israel, uh, somebody who would uh, dare to speak on behalf of Yahweh uh, claim uh, you know for themselves prophetic standing and utterances and it, and you know they said something was going to happen and it didn't happen. Um, the um, well, it, back in those days, the civil authorities would have you um, stoned. They would. It was a capital crime. And, and think about the nature of the crime too. Okay, this is somebody who is speaking on behalf of God, but not doing so because God has sent them. They are pre- be either being purposely deceptive or being presumptuous. And keep this in mind when you when you show you show up and you tell somebody, "Thus saith the Lord, the God God has spoken to me." We are now talking about words from God. And because they are from God, there is no higher authority. And, you know, if if somebody is truly a prophet and you don't listen to them and God is speaking to you through them, well, then you have to answer to God. But if God has not spoken to you and you're deceiving people and manipulating them to do things, 
or to believe things that God has not commanded them to say or do, uh, then what you've done is you've taken God's name and his authority and put it on yourself and uh, and, are, and are deceiving people. This is absolutely blasphemous. So uh, one of the ways in which God has told us, in fact, there's kind of two tests that you can find them both in Deuteronomy. I think 13 and 18 are the chapters. I'm doing that from memory. But... Um, is uh, is if if they if a prophet prophesies something that's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that means they're a false prophet. You are not to listen to them. Scripture makes it perfectly clear. You are not to listen to them. So somebody who is prone to uh, false prophecies isn't really hearing from God, and there's no, you know at that point you can know with certainty they are not to be feared and listened to. They're, God is not speaking through them. Okay? They are to be rejected, shunned, disciplined, you know, and the whole like. You are not to listen to them. Um, the other test, though, is, 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 is the test of apostasy. And so if somebody claims to be a prophet of God, and even if what they're saying is going to happen comes true, you're still not to listen to them if they're apostates. They're teaching false doctrine or teaching you to follow after uh, false gods or to believe a false gospel or things like that. Those are the two tests given in Deuteronomy 13 and 18 regarding prophets. So here, um, so here, Cindy Jacobs, again, she's she's really prone to doing this, is inadvertently revealing that she really doesn't know what Scripture teaches and that she herself is although she claims prophetic status for herself she is not a prophetess she she in fact if you if you look through the archives of fighting for the faith i have documented proof where she has admitted that she has prophesied something would take place and it didn't happen what does that make her a false prophet somebody you shouldn't listen to so she's she's claiming that she's very very impressed by the quote unquote accuracy of james gall as a prophet <laughs> Again, she's just tacitly, inadvertently admitted that she's, you know, she's completely clueless and doctrinally and biblically is not somebody who should be listened to. And just been amazed at some of the stuff that he comes up with. And you think, where did he get that? But somehow God just has this amazing prophetic explosion on the words that he gets. And we're excited to have him. And he's a seer, too. And you know, let's. Tell them what a seer yeah, is. Oh, my. Good. One of the questions yeah. we're going to start yeah. there. Now, listen carefully to what James Gall is going to do. This is some very interesting wordplay that he's getting into, and you have to be able to spot this kind of stuff. you got to be very, very careful. Um, and, and this is an error that a lot of people fall into. Um, you know, it, for instance, you know, it's very easy for somebody to uh, you know, grab a Strong's Concordance and – uh, you know, while they're reading their Bible, they can look up the definition of a Greek or Hebrew word. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you understand this: is that when a word appears in a particular passage, it can have only one meaning in that passage. So, if you come across a word that has multiple meanings, you can't put every meaning into that context because that you know in hermeneutics hermeneutical circles is known as the uh, illegitimate totality transfer error you know, basically turning you know a word into like a, a, a definitional snowball you know you, so it can mean this it means this and it means this and it means this and it means this no it doesn't in that particular context when that word appears it only means one of those things. And so the question that needs to be asked is, which definition is in play 
here in this particular biblical text. Now, let me give you an example of this, you know, kind of an innocuous, innocuous example from Genesis chapter 1, verse 17. And here's what it says. You know, God talking about the sun and the moon, and here's what it says. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Okay. Now, the Hebrew verb for set is uh, yeten, and yeten has multiple meanings. Yeten can mean to give, it can mean to put, it can mean to set. And so you, the idea here is you're getting an idea of what the verb yeten means. Now, now, it doesn't mean to give, to put, and to set in this context, you know, all three definitions. Only one definition applies. And although it would be very, very easy to say, well, oh, God is a giving God. And therefore, the Hebrew word yaten can also mean to give. So it's saying that God gave us the sun and the moon as a gift. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's probably not what yaten means in this context. It probably means in this context that God put the sun and the moon in their place or set them in their place. And and yes, God is a giving God, and I don't want to say that God isn't, but in this particular context, although it's very poetical to talk about Yaten or very gracious to talk about Yaten as God gave us the sun, the moon, and the stars and things like that, and yet technically he did, but in this particular context, uh, give is probably not the the right definition that's in play for Yaten. So you, you get what I'm saying there. So that's the idea. You want to avoid uh, the illegitimate totality transfer and engage Engaging in word games by pouring every meaning of a text of a, of a given word into the, that word when it appears in one context. Only one definition per context applies. So let's see what uh, James Gall does here. Again, we're going to hear some semantical um, gymnastics, if you would. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause that's yeah I mean, you know, I actually had a dream about this last night, too. Let's oh, tell yeah. Okay, no, really. Okay, so here's what happens in, in one of the dreams. Because that's one of the ways the Lord works with me, yeah. is that I have this dream, and I'm telling you, the audience, because Mike and Cindy asked about the difference in the Hebrew and the Greek words for prophet and seer. So anyway, in the Old Testament, there's two different kind of like expressions. And there's the Hebrew word kaze or koze, it's just how you pronounce it, which is translated seer. And then there is the, the word naba or nabi, nabiet, naba for prophet which is actually used around 300 times in the Old Testament, yeah. which mm-hmm. is a lot. Mm. In the New Testament, it's the word prophetia in the Greek. So mm. what does all this mean yes. anyway? Okay, <laughs> so the seer and... Actually, uh, it's either prophetes or prophetuo. Yeah. Prophet in the Old Testament are words that are using to describe how the individual receives revelation. Mm-hmm. And so the seer, obviously, it's more. Now, now this is not. No, it's not. Okay, so he's. So he's. Oh, he, oh. Well, I look. I can quote. You know. Uh, you know these, these the Hebrew word for prophet and the Greek word for prophet, which he got wrong, by the way. And see what these words are really telling us is how the different ways in which how they receive communication from God. That's patently false. That is not true at all. Dreams and visions. A little bit more on the feeler side, feeling the culture, you know, again, the seer. And the Naba prophet is more hearing. It's more spontaneous. It's what we call in the New Testament, the flow. 
the river you calling forth from out of the river of God. Jesus saying out of your innermost being will flow, will flow forth the river. And so there. <laughs> John chapter 7 verse 38 taken way out of context. This is all wordplay going on here. And it's nonsensical wordplay. Nobody does this with the English language, but you know they they are doing this with the Greek and Hebrew language. And by the way, he de- he got the 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 Greek word for prophet totally wrong. And so what he's describing here is complete and utter nonsense. This is not actually true definitionally, uh, semantically, or etymologically. Yeah, this is not even correct at all. Um, but see, the thing is, is that you know somebody who's sitting under a, you know the teaching of somebody like James Gall, especially after a setup like. Uh, Cindy Jacobs gave him, would think that this is a legitimate, true teaching and that by learning this, they're actually learning what God's Word says, when in reality, they're not. They're being deceived, and they're being deceived by a very clever uh, form of Bible twisting that involves, uh, appeals to the Greek and Hebrew without paying attention to some of the real rules that exist regarding how words are used. So, I just uh, bring that up for you to kind of give you an example of what to look for. Uh, you know, and again, it's discernment oftentimes is not a matter of discerning um, you know, you, truth from error, but truth from truthiness. You know, <laughs> that's so. Although uh, he, you know, he did get, get at least two of the words right um, regarding uh, prophets from uh, Hebrew. Uh, his description of what that uh, what that means and what their definitions are is absolutely patently false, and he's engaging in semantical word games. So if you are somebody who likes to learn what a you know you know what a what the the languages mean this it's good to study uh, Greek and Hebrew. Um but the you haven't really had the opportunity to study the languages and you have access to a concordance um you know Strong's concordance or you have access to uh, some of these tools that are supposed to help you get uh to the uh, the Greek and Hebrew meanings be careful. And be careful that you don't engage in this type of twisting of God's word by misapplying the definitions and not paying attention to the fact that when a word appears in a particular context, it only has one meaning, and you can't pull out a whole bunch of different meanings and then just glean all this stuff and then write doctrine from the you know the definitions that you've poured into it. So you got to be very careful. What the question is, what does the word mean when it appears in the context in which it appears, and uh, be careful not to pour every meaning into it or somehow extract out a doctrine by you know engaging in wordplay like this. All right, moving along. Right. You got to accentuate the positive eliminate the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum. Bring gloom down to the minimum. Have faith. Or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene To illustrate my last remark Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accent Chew it to positive, he lived 
Eliminate the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. There you go. You got to accentuate the positive. Johnny Mercer and the Pied Pipers. That takes us way back. Great uh, catch, by the way, You know, for a uh, recommendation for update music for Joyce Meyer. Now, uh, Joyce Meyer is a word of faith heretic. Um, this is a woman who uh, teaches that your words create reality. She is of, of the same ilk as uh, Joel Osteen, which is why the two hang out together and why she preaches at his church and things like that. So what you're going to hear, this is a, from a, um, a a lecture she gave in Tampa, Florida a few years back called The Power of Words. Pay close attention to her theology where she's going to start off on a bad foot, kind of smooth things out, and then it's really going to, you know, somebody's going to pull the trap door and and she's going to just fall right into the Word of Faith heresy big time as you're listening to this. This is a very dangerous woman. People should not be listening to Joyce Meyer and and thinking that they're being fed God's Word and growing in their understanding of what God's Word teaches um, and what God w- wills for them to do by listening to her. You, you, you want to avoid her like the plague. But uh, here's Joyce Meyer and the power of words. Here we go. Words are full of power. They can heal. They can wound. They can minister death, they can minister life, they can encourage, they can discourage, they can build up, they can tear down. People get divorces over words. Families are split apart over words. People lose jobs over words. People have insecurity and a poor self-image over words that have been spoken to them. Words are containers for power. And we need to choose... Words are containers for power. Where... Does the Bible say that words are containers for power? Answer, it doesn't say that anywhere. Words very carefully, and it's time for us to step up to the plate and be accountable for the words that we allow to come out of our mouth. No man can tame the tongue. We need God's help. So you want to pray every day for God to help you with your mouth. Because to be honest, we can say some really dumb stuff when we're upset. But James 1, verse 2, if we can go there. We just talk about our troubles way too much. And we don't talk about what God has done enough. Now, this may be true, but keep in mind, this is in the context of, you know, your words have power. They are containers in which power is put into When David faced Goliath, he didn't stand there and talk about Goliath and how big he was and all about his armor. He talked about all the great things that God had done. Well, I've slain a bear and I've slain a lion, so who cares about Goliath? We talk too much about the issue at hand, and what we should be doing is remembering the great things that God has done for us in the past. Some of you are at a place in your life right now where the devil's gotten you convinced that there's no way that you can stand this, you're not going to make it, but the truth is you have felt that way about other things in your life, and here you are tonight in living color. Now, notice that she didn't say that we need to remember what God's Word says. No, she wants us to think back into our memory and, and put our trust in that rather than what God's Word says. Now, God's Word is powerful. It's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And uh, the, the way the Word of Faith heresy argues is that, well, because we're created in the image of God, we are like little gods. 
And uh, as a result of it, like God, because we're created in his image, uh, which means we too are little gods, um, our words have power to create just like God's words have the power to create. And so that's what's ticking under the hood here. And it's a very, very nasty heresy. But we continue. And I can promise you that you will make it because God has already said he will never let more come on you than what you can bear. But with every temptation, he will provide the way out. So stop saying, I can't do this. This is too much for me. Because every time you talk like that, all you do is make yourself weaker and weaker and weaker. We need to say, I can do whatever I need to do in life through Christ who strengthens me. He will not leave me. No, I need to say, yeah. We, so notice, you, you're going to change the outcomes of the negative things in your life by the words that you speak, not by the power of God, but by the power of your words. The emphasis has changed, as or as Dr. Rosenblatt likes to say, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Now, so apparently we're going to, you know, we're going to get out of our bad circumstances by the power of our words, not the power of Christ. Uh-oh, this is a problem. We continue. Forsake me, and I can do this through him. Help yourself with your words. Don't hurt yourself. James 1, 2, you'll love it. Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, when you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Consider it joyful. Why? Because there is a treasure in your trial. Somewhere, if you'll look for it, there's a treasure in that trial. And I would really like to encourage you to adopt that phrase and start to say that. When you face a struggle, when you face a disappointment, when you face something hard, learn to let one of the first things that comes out of your mouth be, God, help me find the treasure in this trial. There's something good in this if I can find it, and I'm going to talk about that. I don't want to talk about the yucky stuff. I don't want to give the devil glory. I think so often we talk more about what the enemy's doing than we do about what God's doing. We don't need to talk fear. We need to talk faith. Why? Because our words are powerful. Our words are containers for power. Your words... Yeah, she keeps saying it. Our words are containers for power. What Bible passage says this? Answer? There is no Bible passage that says this. This is a doctrine that was made up by humans, not by God can carry your faith to the kingdom of God and release angels to help you or your words can carry your fear to the kingdom of darkness and just release more trouble in your life. We have faith, but it has to be released. So we have faith and it has to be released. According to Joyce, how is our faith released? By our Words. This is the word of faith heresy. This is the foundational concept between the blab it and grab it. Um, you know, <laughs> positive confession, word of faith heresy. And the Bible doesn't teach this. You save yourself by basically activating your faith through your faith filled words. Words are containers, you know, for power. And you just got to send them out. And if you send out negative words, it drags you down. And if you send out positive words, it lifts you up. 
But you're the one exercising the power through your words. You're your own little God. This is not what the scripture teaches. This is a flat out heresy. And like I said, this is all the more reason why, you know, you got to pay attention to what people are saying and notice it's their words, you know, <clears throat> that are, um, that they're using to either teach the truth or to teach error, to exegete what God's word says or to twist and manipulate God's word to make it say things that it doesn't say. And false doctrine is never, never neutral. It always can be dangerous. Some some false doctrine is more dangerous than others, but none of it is it should be looked at as if, you know, ah, it's no big deal. No, it really is a big deal. And this word of faith heresy takes your eyes off of Christ, puts it on yourself, puts your eyes firmly back on you, and you're you're constantly evaluating. Am I saying enough faith-filled positive words to create positive outcomes in my life? Or have I gasped, said something negative that's going to drag me down into the pit of despair? And so you're not looking to Christ, you're looking to you. And Jesus is the object of our faith, whereas the, well, the word of faith heresy, you know what the object of the word of faith heresy is? Your own faith. It's faith in your faith, not faith in Christ. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a couple of good sermons. Yeah, I always like to do that now. <clears throat> Leave you on a good note. So stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We're going to listen to a couple of good sermons here to end the week off with. And it's been a while since I've um, done a sermon from Jeff Ware. Thinking, Jeff who? Yeah, I know, it's been too long.
All right, let's do this right. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today we have two sermons that we're going to be listening to, two very good ones. Uh, the first of them comes to us via Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas. Pastor Jeffrey Ware presiding. The name of the sermon is They Saw Jesus Only. And this is a, uh, the gospel text he will be preaching from is the gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And then sermon number 2 is by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. The name of the sermon is Look and See, Come and Stay, Go and Tell. And it's, on the, it's based upon the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. Now, let me go ahead and kill the music here. And I'm going to read to you the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, which is, uh, forms the basis of Jeffrey Ware's sermon. And you're thinking, isn't that a, a transfiguration sermon? Yes, it is. And I understand it's a little early in Epiphany to be doing that. Hopefully you will forgive me for the faux packs there. <clears throat> that would be faux pas. But uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, reads thus. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the text that forms the basis of Pastor Jeffrey Ware's sermon, They Saw Jesus Only. Here we go. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Matthew ends his account of the transfiguration of our Lord. For us, it's a familiar story. Jesus, taking a few of his disciples with him, departs to a mountain. And on that mountain, a wondrous thing occurs. Jesus is changed. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. For a moment, the disciples see the true majesty of the King of kings and Lord of lords. They witness Jesus in this transfigured state talking with Moses and Elijah. They're enveloped in a bright cloud as joy fills their hearts. 
And then they hear the words of the Father, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And they fall down, terrified. And then the comforting words of Jesus, Rise, have no fear. And just like that, it's over. And the text ends with these words, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. That's what being a Christian is all about. Jesus only. That's not how it usually begins. It usually begins when a sinner first comes to an understanding of his sin. And that in itself is a miracle of God, a miracle of God's law. It's a tremendous gift when God allows us to see ourselves as we truly are. When He allows us to compare our depravity with His holiness, our guilt with His righteousness. It's an act of mercy. Like that critical moment when an addict finally hits rock bottom, admits his addiction, and asks for help. But where would the addict be if he was left alone without help? Where would the sinner be if left only with the knowledge of his treason against his Creator? The Holy Spirit works through the law, God's law, to force us to look upon ourselves and see our utter sinfulness. But He doesn't leave us alone with that knowledge. No, once we have seen our true situation, He lifts up our hearts to hear the words of the Gospel. And those Gospel words fill our hearts with courage in the face of our sin. Courage to lift up our eyes and see Jesus only. God doesn't have to do it, you know. He could have just left you in your sin. It would have been completely just and fair for Him to wipe you off the face of the earth. Or worse, to simply leave you to suffer in the slow, agonizing march toward death that is this life apart from Christ. But God cannot do that. He can't because the blood of Jesus shed for the whole world cries out to Him for mercy. And the Father will not let the blood of His Son be shed in vain. And so you are shown mercy. As the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son to work upon your heart, It is for Jesus' sake and because of His great sacrifice for you that the Holy Spirit comes in word, in water, in bread and wine to awaken you from the deathly sleep of sin, to open your sin-blinded eyes, to behold Jesus only. To be sure, this awakening is a severe mercy. Surely we would rather have continued under the delusion that there was nothing wrong with us. But as any good doctor will tell you, it has to hurt if it's to heal. 
And it hurts to see our true selves in the mirror of God's law. But it's only after we behold the horror that is our true selves that our gaze is finally turned toward the beautiful Savior, the radiant King, the risen Savior, Jesus only. Dear friends, the law causes grief and despair in order that you might eagerly accept the comfort proclaimed in the gospel that Jesus has paid for all your sins. The law frightens you and threatens you with eternal torment because of your sins so that you might take refuge in Jesus only. No pain, no gain. God must awaken you through His law so that His good news can have its way with you. What good would it be to hear of a Savior If you didn't know, you needed saving in the first place. So God strikes you with the hammer of His law, breaking in pieces your sinful pride and self-reliance until you cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in that moment of terror, Jesus comes to you. The Holy Spirit comes to you with Jesus only. And not just a dim, vague notion that God will somehow overlook your sins. Somehow He'll just pass over your rebellion. No, the Holy Spirit comes with a message of reconciliation. It is a reconciliation accomplished as the only Son of God took the mighty wrath and anger that the Father had toward you. Upon Himself, suffering every blow, every bitter pain that you deserve because of your sins. This is the message of reconciliation, the glorious gospel that there is no more wrath left for you because it has all been exhausted upon the Son. Jesus only is the basis of your justification. God does not see your sins any longer, for they are covered in the blood of Jesus. Jesus is sinless, and now you are considered just as sinless by the Father. Now, if God were to look at your good deeds, He would also see the sins which contaminate them all. If God were to look at your good deeds, He would be forced to punish you according to His law. God says, the soul who sins shall die. So God does not look at your your deeds at all. He looks to Jesus only. No other righteousness is valid and pleasing before the Father than that of His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. And for Jesus' sake, those words apply to you as well. The Father says of you, You are my beloved sons in whom I am well pleased. Faith might be described as rightly seeing. Faith comes 
when a person, after seeing the awful depth of his own misery, all at once, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lifts up his eyes to see Jesus only. And when this faith is created, when this new way of seeing is bestowed upon us, we cannot turn our thoughts from Jesus. He becomes everything to us. And everything else is counted as rubbish. We seek for Jesus, come to Him, long for His righteousness, pray in His name, and hope in Him alone. We yearn to know Him more deeply and to trust Him more surely. All of this is to say that the one who believes this good news is forever transformed. Seeing Jesus only, seeing all He has done and won for us, we come to love God's Word and we desire to become more like Jesus. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in My statutes and keep My rules and obey them. Scripture also says that the believer is not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of his mind. And that God is at work in the believer both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus only is our sanctification. For it is Jesus who grants the believer power to put off the old sinful self and to put on the new. If you have any hope of ridding yourself of wicked thoughts, if you are to eliminate your evil desires, if you are ever to succeed at overcoming your old sinful habits, then you must know and you must believe that there is no other help in heaven or on earth than Jesus only. He has conquered sin and declares to us in His Word that we too are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's not often preached these days, but it's true. Jesus is not only your justification. He has not only granted forgiveness and put His righteousness on you. Jesus is also your sanctification. By His power and His alone, you become more like Him, growing in grace, in good works, in mercy and love for the neighbor. So many people get it backwards. They suppose that first a person must grow in good works and in mercy and in love, and then God will give them His grace and forgiveness. They conceive of God as the great cosmic Santa Claus who gives His good gifts only to good little girls and boys. Or maybe at least to those who tried their best. But the truth is that God's way is the complete opposite. First comes His grace. Not for righteous people, but for sinners. First, He awakens you, forgives you, justifies you. And the more you grow in faith in the Lord Jesus, the more you will also increase in good works. The more faith you have, the more love you will have. We love because He first loved us.
the more you realize and grasp the love of Christ for you, the more you will be empowered to love others. How can we not love the one who so deeply loved us that he was willing to give his life on the cross for us? How can you not be patient in suffering and trial and bear your cross knowing with what agony Christ bore His for you? How can you not hate your sins knowing what it cost your Savior to free you of them? How can you not love all men knowing that the same blood shed for you was also shed for them? It is love for Jesus that enables us to love all men because He has made them all objects of His love. It is love for Jesus which quiets our anger when we are offended, which kills hatred and enables the believer to love his enemies since Jesus loves them too, just as He loved us even while we were His enemies. Don't you see? Jesus only is your sanctification. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Jesus only. Jesus only is the cause of your awakening. Jesus only is your justification. Jesus only is your sanctification. Jesus only. If you're sitting here today confident in your goodness, comparing yourself with others and believing that God is pleased with you because you are better than other people, then hear God's warning. Do you know who you're warring against? Who you're scoffing at? Jesus shed His blood for you, and yet in your security you deny that you were in need of His sacrifice? It's Jesus and His blood shed on Calvary that you mock with your self-security. And it is Jesus only who you will face at the final judgment. How terrible it will be for you as you lie on your deathbed at the end of your life and realize that the wrath of the Son remains on you. And how awful will the face of the Son be when in the resurrection you lift your head from the grave? Listen to what you've heard. Remember that Jesus only is your salvation. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look to Jesus only and know this. When you have Jesus, you have everything. He is your righteousness and your strength. And when the last day comes and you fall on your face in terror, You, like the disciples in our text, will hear these blessed words. Rise, have no fear. 
And when you lift up your eyes, you will see no one but Jesus only. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. Sermon number two is from Pastor Ron Hodel, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. The name of the sermon is Look and See, Come and Stay, Go and Tell. And it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42, which reads, And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Um, and I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me ba uh, to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the gospel text that forms the basis of Pastor Ron Hodel's sermon, Look and See, Come and Stay, Go and Tell. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. The disciples of John the Baptist knew all about lambs. There were stories about one-time sacrifices, like the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac is nearly killed. You remember the story, Abraham and Isaac climbed that mountain together, Isaac carrying the wood for the fire, and Abraham the fire, and the knife. And Isaac innocently asks, where's the sacrifice we're going to offer up to God? Just that question was enough to cut the heart of old Abraham to its core. How he was able to hide his tears from Isaac, I'll never know. A lump in his throat nearly choked him to death as his 113-year-old heart was pounding to the breaking point. Then after a while, mustering up enough strength and courage for one last response, Abraham utters a most prophetic word. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And Abraham wasn't lying to Isaac either. God had provided the sacrifice. And his name was Isaac. God had provided Isaac from the absolutely dead womb of his mother, Sarah. And on that dreadful day, 13 years later, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. God had provided the sacrifice. 
It was Isaac. But just as Abraham lifted his hand, the knife in his hand, to sacrifice his only son, the Lord stopped his hand and pointed him to a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. A ram. Because if you didn't have a lamb, a ram would do. And Isaac was delivered because God provided the lamb. There were stories about one-time sacrifices. And there were annual sacrifices as well. Like the Passover lamb. Every year, the people of Israel were to remember the escape from Egypt that God had orchestrated by the sacrifice of a lamb or Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, they were to recall how the Lord saved the firstborn of each family because the angel of death passed over the doors marked by the blood of the lamb. The lamb died. The firstborn in the family lived. There were one-time sacrifices. There were annual sacrifices. And there were twice daily sacrifices as well. Still going on at the temple. Morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed to God by the priests, just as God had commanded. One lamb you shall sacrifice or offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Two lambs, every day, offered to the Lord. John's disciples knew all about the lambs. Because with these sacrifices, God was constantly holding out a theme in front of them. Lambs shed their blood and died. And because these lambs shed their blood and died, the people lived. Day after day, year after year, century after century, the Lord had kept His message in front of His people. And with good reason. They were to look for the Lamb of God who would save them all. The lives and deaths of all the lambs pointed forward to one final lamb and one final sacrifice. The people, though, hadn't taken always very well to the sacrifices. Rather than sacrifice to remember the Savior who was coming, some, not all, but some, got it in their heads that they were saved by their work of sacrificing. All God's interested in is the sacrificing of the lambs. As long as we kill the lambs on schedule, we'll be fine. Today, the world might say it this way. All God, who, whoever God is, all God's interested in is us being better than average, keeping all or at least most of the rules, having a generally giving heart and a caring spirit, more karma than more good karma than bad, and that's enough to get you to the good side of the afterlife. That's precisely the point God was not trying to make. The Lamb was supposed to remind them that their Savior was coming. Not that they could save themselves by getting the sacrifices done on time. And so the Lord declared again and again through his prophets, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. It's not about just doing the sacrifices to do the sacrifices. And ultimately, in part because of that attitude, Israel had to spend 70 years enslaved in Babylon so that they would have a chance to think about it. And God told them so much. Seventy years in Babylon. 
And then they were allowed to go back to Palestine and start over again. Kind of like in hockey, where if you do something wrong on the ice, you have to sit in the penalty box for two minutes to think about what you did. Israel had to sit for 70 years. And so you think that by John's day, they would have gotten things better, but they hadn't. The lambs were still sacrificed twice a day, but they were being sacrificed then for the wrong reasons. This time, among other things, the sacrifices had become big business. Money changers worked them for profit. Big bucks changed hands. And whenever big bucks changes hands, the stakes in the whole deal go up. Way up. So no wonder John the baptizer moved as far east from Jerusalem as he could, out into the desert, out to the Jordan, away from the temple, in order to preach that the lives and deaths of all those lambs were pointing forward to one final lamb and one final sacrifice. And did John preach? And as John preached to the crowds about the Savior to whom the lambs were pointing, Jesus, the long-awaited Savior, who had made John jump up and down in his mother's womb even before he was born, Jesus was standing in the crowd. The Word who had created the heavens and the earth was standing there in the flesh. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The one who comes after John but is still greater than John. The strap of whose sandal John wouldn't count himself worthy to untie. The Savior to whom all of the lives and deaths of all of those lambs pointed. He was standing there in the crowd. And now that he's shown up, John must become lesser while Jesus becomes greater. John's job was to point to the Savior. And so he does. John does what all the lambs in the Old Testament were to do. He points to Jesus. He singles Jesus out. And for all the crowd to hear, he says, Look and see. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaac was saved by a lamb. And so were all the firstborn sons of Israel at Passover. And so if all the world is saved by a lamb, it makes perfect sense to call the Savior the lamb. But there's something kind of unsettling in all this, the Savior is the lamb kind of talk. When John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he announces that there's going to be suffering and death ahead. The lambs will save, the lamb will save as the lambs had always saved, by dying. That's what lambs do. The lamb who saved Isaac didn't live to tell his grand lamb about it. And neither did all those year old Passover lambs, or the ones sacrificed every day at the temple. The lambs saved by dying. Not that the lambs saved them, of course, but they were saved by faith in the promise of God. And this lamb too will do the same except that his death will save. And that's exactly what Isaiah the prophet said about the lamb of God. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter 
And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's how the Lamb of God saves. He hasn't come to make peace with the world, but with God. And the only way to make peace with God is to represent all of us. And at one point in time, on the cross, sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. That's how the Savior saves There might be more attractive messiahs out there to follow. In fact, it's not there might be. There are. But this is the only one who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, John says. Look and see. And by faith, John's disciples do. Trusting in the word of the Lord proclaimed by John, they abandoned John and followed Jesus. And that's what John says to us today as well. Look and see. He's your lamb too. Look and see. And then come and stay. To see that he's the lamb... And to know that He's for you, to know that He has covered everything that can destroy you forever, to know that that does something to you. You want to be with someone like that. And that's what Andrew and the other disciple wanted. They looked and saw their lamb and followed Him. And Jesus turns around and sees them following and He asks, What do you want? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And when they find out, they went and spent the day with him. Maybe Jesus was staying in someone's house. Maybe he was staying in a clump of trees. But Andrew and the other disciple could go to where Jesus was staying because they lived when Jesus walked the face of the earth. But can we do that today? Can we go and be with Jesus? And the answer is, yes, we can. And we don't have to die first either. Or, I guess I should say, we do have to die first. But it's a death you already died in these baptismal waters. The Lamb of God to whom John pointed still dwells Among us. And you know where? Not in the temple anymore. There isn't a temple. And even if one did get rebuilt, he's moved from there. And not out in the Jordan or Nazareth or Bethlehem either. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. But he did leave a forwarding address. Remember what he said If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Jesus has taken up residence in His words. In fact, it's where He's always been. And He promises to live in those who let His words live in them. We can follow Him today straight to His words, and there we will find Him and He us. And it goes further than that. 
Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. I didn't say that. Jesus did. If you don't have a sacramental theology, then you have to do some pretty amazing linguistic gymnastics to make Jesus not say what he very clearly says. But it was clear. So clear that upon hearing it, the people said, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And many turned back and no longer walked with him. He dwells with us through his word, which is why it's so important to be in his word and in his sacraments, because he's promised. Here at his banquet table, we eat and drink with him, and he comes and lives in us. And so if we were to ask the Lamb of God, where are you staying? He'd still give us the same answer. Come and see. And then he would lead us to his word and to the waters of baptism and to his table where he invites us to come and stay with him. So look and see. Come and stay. And there's only one thing left to do, and that is go and tell. There's still a lot of people who don't know anything about the Lamb of God. They don't know that all the lives and deaths of all those lambs in the Old Testament were pointing forward to the one final lamb and the one final sacrifice. Or maybe they do know a whole lot about all of that, even more than we might. But they don't know the one thing they need to know. They don't know that He's the Lamb of God who has taken their sins away. They don't know the Holy Spirit who comes to give them Jesus. And the joy of being in His presence in word and sacrament. And so they go off looking for Him somewhere else, or they quit looking for Him altogether, or they try to find what He offers in places where nothing that lasts will ever be found. They don't know the one thing they need to know above everything else. And so someone needs to tell them. But did you notice what Jesus didn't do? He didn't tell Andrew to go and tell. And the reason, I think, is rather simple. We can't help but talk about things we're excited about. You see a great movie, and you just got to tell somebody about it. You go to a great restaurant, and you just got to take somebody there. We sing the praises of what excites us. And like Andrew, when we've tasted the joy of Jesus being our lamb, when we tasted the joy of living with him in word and sacrament, we can't keep that enjoyment to ourselves. You've got to try it, we say to others. Maybe not that way, but you know what I mean. Now, if we've been falling down a bit in the go and tell part, where do you think the source of that problem lies? Being a problem-solving, blame-laying people, we look and we say, certainly the problem isn't with us. The source of the problem must be in the fact that the church hasn't come up with the right program yet. So we've got to try something else. Maybe we're not good at going and telling, so we figure what we need is a new evangelism program that will help us go and tell. Or maybe we really need more stimulating sermons. And more dynamic preachers. That's, that's really it. Or perhaps we need to have the pastor reprogrammed. Or get a newer version. Or an upgrade. 
or a new download or load in a new operating system or something. In 33 years of ministry, watching countless programs come and go, I think it's safe to say the problem isn't with the programs. I'll let the program writers off the hook. The source of the problem is all the way back in the look and see part. If we take the time to look and see and ponder the words of John the Baptist, that surely this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that not only is He the Lamb of God, but that He's your Lamb and mine. And that he really has taken away everything that can possibly separate us from the love of God. Every evil that we have done, every sin, it's all covered. Even the worst that you can think of that you've done, covered, forgiven, let go, not held against you. Every last thing. And if we're enthused by the fact that even right now we can come and stay with Jesus and He with us, and He makes His home in us, even right here and now, through His Word and at His table, then perhaps the words of John the Baptist will work a mighty wonder, like they did so many years ago, and we won't be able to stop talking about Him either. Look and see. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's your Lamb. And believe me, you need what he has to give. Look and see. Come and stay. He's as present for you now as he was with Andrew and that other disciple who spent the day with him and then the rest of their lives. Then, well, I don't need to tell you. You already know. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>